This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum and robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well-lived. For more information, visit udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Go Groundhogs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you, I think they're actually the um, Knights or Crusaders or something like that, because I have a University of Dallas shirt and it has some sort of a knight on it. Um, but Groundhogs is definitely their unofficial. Uh, that, that one's for the that one's for the home team, JD. That one's for the home team. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar editor in chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, we have so many things to talk about this morning. We just have so many things to talk about. A lot going on in the life of the church. A lot going on with us. But you know what I've been thinking about, Ed? Tell me. The Arch Deluxe. Do you remember the Arch Deluxe, the burger with the ground up taste? No. Really? No, I don't know the Arch Deluxe. I'm unfamiliar. From whence does it come? So in 1996, um, McDonald's launched a hamburger called the Arch Deluxe, and they, they branded it as the burger with the grown-up taste. It's not your kid's, it's not your kid's burger here. It's not a Big Mac. Big Mac. Rather, it had a kind of – it had ketchup on it, and it had uh, shredded lettuce and tomato and cheese and, and mayo, but it also had this sort of creamy brown – mustard on it and um and the creamy brown mustard i suppose was the thing that made it the the burger with the grown-up taste and you could get it with a kind of thicker bacon a kind of um you know peppered bacon that was different from what was on other mcdonald's burgers i think and uh it was it was advertised as the burger with the grown-up taste was it a train wreck um, it was so they not spent surprised. all this money advertising it, and they had all these commercials. I don't know if you remember wow. the commercials, but you don't. No, but, I, I wasn't in yeah, the country for this one. This. They have they had all these commercials in which children like made faces, like this is yeah, disgusting. Were shown a Nars Deluxe and made faces like we don't want this, we don't know, and. Um, and uh, um, I think so they the also Arch Deluxe was maybe, the new Coke of cheeseburgers. From yeah, McDonald's. they maybe also had a. If I remember correctly, they also had a chicken deluxe. Um, and I think the bun was advertised as being somewhat premium relative to the other buns and everything, but it um, it did not uh, last. It did not the, the the Arch Deluxe did not work out for McDonald's burger with a grown up taste was just not what people were were keen on. And very uh, I, few people look it was a flop. for. Well, a, a clown show by the sound of it. Um, I, <laughs> I yeah, very few people I would imagine. Uh, are susceptible to a pitch of refinement in their fast food. Right, exactly. And if That's you couple exactly. it with visuals of otherwise happy children becoming upset at eating it, that's that doesn't surprise me that this belly flopped. Um, but yeah, there you go. What brought That's that to mind? Exactly. Why are we talking about this? Not that I'm not enjoying it. I, I don't know why we're talking about the burger with the ground taste, the, the arch deluxe. But what was cool about it is that I think that some of the other products outlast, uh, outlasted it. So I think the crispy chicken deluxe outlasted the, the arch deluxe and was actually fine. It was just like a crispy chicken sandwich with, with cheese on it. And it was it was good. But it was basically a huge – McDonald's had done all of this research saying that – it had a too sort of child centric image, and it needed to sort of rebrand itself for the sort of white collar lunch crowd, and um, and this would be the way to, that it was a huge untapped market for it, and this would be the way that it would do it. But it was 
just a gigantic flop. I I, I think that um, basically the Arch Deluxe sort of overlaps with 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 high school for me because I think they killed it in two thousand, which is of course the year that you and I graduated from high school. So it's just like this little span of time, but it's it was one of it's like the Kwame Brown of sandwiches, really, just a huge, huge flop. Although. I shouldn't have said that because you know Kwame Brown actually had a pretty decent NBA career. He just didn't have the NBA career that lived up to his expectations. He was a sort of Christian Leitner figure. Uh, well, Christian Leitner, I think, sort of came in with huge expectations and bounced around on a few teams without ever really catching on anywhere. Whereas Kwame Brown had a decent NBA career. I think he ended up playing for 12 or 13 seasons. He, he just – everybody – Michael Jordan said he was the next Michael Jordan and that was not a great way to – that was not a great way to well michael jordan would clearly have known that he was going to stall then because michael jordan doesn't believe there will ever be a next michael right, jordan exactly and that's right so michael jordan doing jordan that was, was just a just, kiss of death it was just like was oh yeah this is of- the next best you're going to get from me a journeyman just you know grinding <laughs> it out on i mean honestly it's well, kind no of like shaquille should- o'neal no one should uh, criticize this sort of 12 year nba career i mean you know i mean the guy no one should criticize. This is the thing that always kills me is when people are like, oh, so-and-so had a bad career. So it's like you, you said like, oh, you know, it's unfair to compare Kwame Brown to Christian Leitner. Like, hang on. The only thing you can criticize Christian Leitner for is the is the long hair phase in Minnesota. Like everything <laughs> – the guy won a national championship in college, was on the dream team, yeah, and then played the in the NBA. Like that's – I'm sorry, that's playing life with the cheat codes on by yeah, anyone's again, estimation. Right. I mean, like, you don't get to say, oh, he really you know, stunk. A 13-year career in the NBA, you can hardly criticize. It's just that these guys came into the league with so much so much um, hype, and they didn't live up to that hype because they ended up being decent but not great players, you know, role players. And uh, and I unfairly compared them to the Arch Deluxe because the Arch Deluxe was just a huge flop. I mean, just in and out like that, nothing doing. The Greg Odin maybe of sandwiches look of all of the things that i never know what we're going to talk about when we start the show this is the most enjoyable blind side i've had <laughs> cheeseburgers and nba journeyman i yeah okay i'm okay i'm, I'm there for i was that. just i was just i was just thinking about the burger with the grown up days we've got to move on though ed i know you want to keep talking about that and i i appreciate that you brought it up um but we've got to we've got to move on from it if you don't mind no that's fine there has been a lot of Stuff we have published a lot of words this week. Many, many, many words. Many stories. Many important stories. Many important stories. Many newses, and we'll continue to next week. Of course, is the fall plenary meeting of the U.S. Bishops Conference, and we'll report on the Bishops Conference. We'll, we'll, we'll be at the Bishops Conference. We'll be reporting on the Bishops Conference. We'll talk about the Bishops Conference in the second half of the show. But before we do, you know, one story that we reported at in a certain way has become the story that wasn't, and in a certain way, I think that it became the story that that it wasn't is probably at least potentially seen as a sort of uh, the effect of journalism, which I think is cool. But I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about our reporting on the, um, uh, our, our reporting, which I think we published what Saturday on the, um, perspective changes to the process for the election of a pontiff and then what happened thereafter. So why don't you bring the folks up to speed if you, if you will. Uh, okay. Uh, so on Saturday last week, just, just under a week ago now, we published a story saying that we had heard from several independent, highly credible sources in Rome, senior Vatican lawyers, people close to the Secretary of State, uh, things like that, that that Pope Francis had delegated um, Cardinal Gianfranco Ghirlanda, his canon lawyer of choice for big legal projects in the church, 
to look at possible changes to University Dominici Gregis, which is the apostolic constitution, which basically sets out what happens from when a pope dies until the next pope is elected. Um, all of the events around and including um, a conclave, but that of course includes not just the part where they're locked in the Sistine Chapel, but the general congregations beforehand when everyone meets in, in public, papal funerals, all that sort of thing. Who's eligible to vote, who's eligible to participate, who's invited, all of that stuff. And we reported that two of the changes um, that Cardinal Ghirlanda was looking at uh, included um, limiting attendance at the general congregations, uh, which precede the conclave. So after the Pope dies, all of the cardinals gather in Rome and they have these uh, public meetings where they have traditionally sort of given addresses, uh, seven minutes in length, I think is what they're allowed, about what they think the cardinals should be considering, what they think the college should be looking for, what they think the church needs uh, in their in their discernment to select the next bishop of Rome. Uh, and he, we reported, is, was considering reform to stop the cardinals over 80 from attending these uh, these general congregations, to limit it only to those cardinals under the age of 80, which is the same as saying those cardinals which actually are eligible to vote in the conclave itself. Um, kind of a controversial reform to propose or consider because, of course, um, quite a lot of cardinals are over 80. And... Um, Many people would say that being over 80 doesn't mean a churchman has nothing to say. Pope Francis is himself somewhat over 80, and I don't think many people uh, would, would argue um, that he he has uh, no effect and no opinion uh, in in the life of the church worth hearing. Uh, Cardinal Galando himself is over 80. He's 81. Uh, so so that um, is a controversial possible reform in itself for Cardinal Galando to have been working on. And the second thing is that he said sort of in, in place of that or alongside that reform, we could invite some lay people possibly to the, to the general congregation who could, who could speak. Uh, and the third thing that we reported was being considered is that the pre-conclave general assemblies would be conducted in a more synodal fashion. So rather than having a general assembly where the cardinals can get up and speechify and give their opinion on what the what the church needs and what the next pope should be like and what sort of people uh, the the cardinals should be considering, they would sit at tables of ten or so, and they would have a a rather more private, scripted conversation, which would then be sort of you know gathered up table by table and a sort of sense of the whole presented. Uh, much in the way that the synod on much synodality. in the way of the synod on synodality, that's right. Which is an ironic reform to be considering um, by Cardinal Ghirlanda on, on behalf or at the request of Pope Francis, because um, most people pretty much accept that Pope Francis's candidacy in the conclave that elected him came, came out of the speeches that his he made speech at the General Assembly. Assembly. Like you know, this right. is how you identify cardinals who maybe not a lot of people have heard of before. You get to hear them in their own voice. You get, you know you get an alternative, fresh perspective. Um, and instead, moving to a sort of very, very staged, managed, very controlled, very message disciplined, which I guess is what synodal means now. Uh, a, a format has struck a lot of people as somewhat discordant. And uh, you know, but but so anyway, we reported that these were the these were the proposals that Cardinal Ghirlanda was playing around with uh, in this project. Yeah, let's just talk about that for one minute before we talk about what happened next, because I, I think okay. what you're saying is important there. The the notion, uh, which was reported to us again by um, senior sources with um, in the position to know, was again that the general congregations, instead of being meetings where all the cardinals would sort of sit and um, 
have the opportunity to get up on the microphone and give their sort of seven minutes on what the church needs would become synodal exercises of cardinals sitting at round tables and sort of t- talking with each other about what the church needs. The, the notion of this sort of roundtable discernment is that listening to the Holy Spirit about what the church needs, and then um, from there would be presented sort of summary reports of those conversations. And I think what you said it is very important, that the um, the effect of such a change would be to um, to transfer influence from those who make the most sort of um, the, the the speeches of resonance um, or offer the reflections of resonance to transfer influence from them to those who are in sort of institutional um, institutionally influential positions, namely the sort of facilitators or reporters or the sort of uh, um, leaders of the, the the appointed leaders of the of the of the synodal general congregation, and so you go from this sort of transfer from something where. Um, influence you move in from the, the prophetic to the bureaucratic. Right. I was going to say from the charismatic, but from the prophetic is, is quite right. You move from centers of influential polls, which are prophetic or charismatic, i.e. those who, whose speech seems most to resonate with the will of God to the cardinals, to those who occupy these sort of um, positions of, of, uh, of authority or responsibility as becoming the influencers. And you can see how that changes perhaps the way in which candidates would be vetted or considered or regarded by their peers in terms of sort of their candidacy for the for the pontificate but you can also see um how y- you have a kind of uh, a kind of dampening of the prophetic witness of particular cardinals a kind of potential dim- diminishment of the, the the potential prophetic witness of cardinals if what people have to say and the way they have to say it is reduced into um this kind of re- reportage um structure so it's it's not only sort of who is influential, but what they're influential for and what becomes sort of valued. Yep. I think that's a fair, fair summary. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, there, the people who sort of are for this would say, yeah, but the general congregations are populated by old cardinals speechifying and not really listening, you know, not really um, respecting the time limit and who wants to listen to an old cardinal speechify for 25 minutes, et cetera, et cetera. Least of all, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of like they say the hardest gr- group for a priest to, to preach to is brother priests, right? Because they're all, they're not listening to be spiritually inspired. They're sort of technically criticizing the homily and considering how they might have done it differently and something like that. And so when you say who wants to listen to an old cardinal speechify, well, any old cardinal in the world could fill an auditorium pretty quickly, but um, his brothers are going to be his harshest critics and the ones sort of least interested. So, it, you know, well, you, but that I think is actually an argument in favor for, for the way things have been done up till now, which is you want cardinals making speeches to their toughest audience. Right. Yeah, that's right. That, that's if you can't impress them, then there's no point. Yeah, that's I think that's which again is exactly what Jorge Borgoglio did. When, especially because I think one of the lessons of this pontificate is if you can't win the um, organic and natural support of your brother bishops and your brother cardinals, if they won't follow you, not because you're Pope, but because they want to follow you, then all of the things that you think the Lord wants to be doing for the church or the things that you want to be doing for the church will be very much more exercises in the um, imposition of your authority rather than um, the kinds of things which develop kind of an organic momentum and enthusiasm and and, and tend to, I think, have probably long, longer lasting and deeper reaching effect. I entirely agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So we reported all of this and, um, and a couple of hours went by and it was picked up in other places. And in fact, there was some follow-up reporting, uh, another, another journalist, uh, 
who lives and works in the Vatican, Diana Montaigne, uh, made a report of her own, which uh, she reported several of the same things that we said we had heard um, and some things that we hadn't heard. Uh, she she reported, I think, that there was actually a proposal to allow lay people into the conclave and to make up a, a percentage of the voting membership of the conclave, which you know is that's a that's a big possible change. It's it's not one we heard, which is why we didn't report it. But uh, that is a that is certainly a you know a big deal if that if that is under consideration. Uh, and and the whole you know the the whole sort of Catholic journalistic ecosphere picked up on this, and there was a lot of back and forth. And immediately you had sort of the usual suspects lining up to say, "Ah, oh, this is this this is exactly the sort of nefarious, underhanded um, Francis Sinodal gerrymandering that you know we knew he'd be up to." And then you had people on the other side saying, "Well, of course, Pope Francis has asked Cardinal Guerlain to do this, and these are exactly the sort of reforms this we would have exactly predicted." And, what we uh, we have always needed these reforms, and we will always need these reforms. And in and fact, they, here's a list of eight or nine occasions in the last eighteen months where you can see them clearly telegraphing. This is where they're that's going exactly with all right. Of and the Pontiff has has correctly assessed exactly what the Church needs in this moment. And even though none of us had ourselves said it previously, we all must now recognize that we too, in our genius and our sort of connection to the pontiff, had also known that these reforms were immediately known. You saw the yes. whole panoply, right? The yes. pontiff is the devil and we and the pontiff are the great shining sun, somewhere in between. Yeah. Somewhere like that, yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and then um, and then a lot of people got their fingers caught in the mangle uh, of the news cycle because <laughs> I, I guess late Sunday night was the first time and then uh, certainly all through Monday morning, Cardinal Ghirlanda issued a series of... Uh, Fairly categorical denials. That's right, and and he was he did not differentiate. So an important thing that you said is that subsequent to our reporting, another uh, outlet, an outlet which um, wh whose stated mission is you know so our stated mission is that we want to report on the life of the church, we care about the reform and the renewal of the church, but you know we want to do accurate and serious reporting. That seems to be our seems to be our our mo and our goal. But the the second outlet that picked it up is a goal that is much more clear, sort of advocacy journalism. Um, the Remnant, the newspaper that kind of reported on this, says very clearly, we think that there's a crisis of modernism in the church, and we it is our effort to oppose that modernism at every turn. So in that context, the Remnant reported, I just think sort of the context of the reporting is, is, is relevant. The Remnant did this Sure, but I think it should be pointed out that um, the journalist who wrote the story writes for a number of different – she's published for the Pillar a number before. Different and, she's yeah. published mm -hmm. to the Pillar before. That's right. Exactly. So anyway, so this thing comes out, which far exceeds what we had reported, which picks up these notions of the general congregations that we had included, but also includes this this prospect, which was not in our reporting. We did not hear we this. We just we haven't heard have, it. That's, it's, yeah, that's right. Simple. Namely, that the Pope would want to introduce lay people potentially into the actual voting. And that would be a much more significant change were it true. Now, it would not actually be, it is not a matter of divine law that only cardinals can elect the pontiff. Um, it's not or, even a matter of history that only the cardinals. It's not even a matter of history, precisely. That's exactly right. It, and in fact, in the early centuries of the church, acclamation by the clergy and laity of a place for the appointment of a bishop was a sort of ordinary course of things. So, In one occasion that I recall, uh, the bishop of Rome was selected. He was a non-cleric, I think. And he was just sort of standing at the back of the room where they were, you know, the candidates were speechifying at the top and everyone was trying to figure out. And a pigeon landed on his head and everyone said, it's a sign from God. And they made it. That's hope. right. And maybe it was. May well have been. I doubt it myself, but that's that's how it happened. And there's a lot of ways to make the sausage. That's right. So anyway, so that's not in itself sort of a betrayal of divine law or something like that. But we didn't report that because we hadn't heard anything like that. So so that's the context in which this thing went from our reporting, which was these are – there are some sort of um, – 
concrete systematic changes to the general congregations to something which I think attracted a lot more attention once it was. And the Pope is thinking about having lay people vote for his successor. Um, and that was the context in which Cardinal Ghirlanda issued these very concrete and direct and, uh, and no holds barred um, denials. Blanket denials. Yes, that's right. He did not specify which of the things were he was denying or which of the things he wasn't. I don't know about any implication that I am involved in such a such a project, or the Pope has asked me to do such a thing. Totally false, utterly without foundation. In fact, I think he called it um, utter lies. Was one of the one of the things he called it, which is unusual because it's um, it's a rare occasion for a cardinal of the Church to call uh, a media report lies directly you don't you don't often get that kind of strident denial you even if uh even if they want to cast out on the veracity of a report and even not speaking about pillar reporting here uh or even this story but you know in general there tends to be a much more sort of gentle gentlemanly way of saying i don't think that's that's necessarily so but this is a very strident and direct and uh unqualified denial from cardinal Girlanda, and i I struggle to think of an occasion when a cardinal of the church has come out and flatly denied and said there is no basis, in fact, for for something that we've published. Um, well, there was that one time that Cardinal World denied that he'd ever heard a had rumor denied. about yeah, Theodore right. McCarrick uh, before right. 2018, and then we reported that actually he had he as Bishop of Pittsburgh, he personally driven from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C. to put an accusation against McCarrick in the hands of the nuncio. And of course, Cardinal Roche, who has not flatly denied things we have reported, has said that we are full of extraordinary hubris by by reporting them. So that's not a denial. Well, he, kind of, he denied that we were, it's interesting you mentioned that because Cardinal Roche, we, we reported that um, his application of Traditionis Custodes was extra legal. And in fact, if he wanted mm-hmm. to enforce it the way he was doing so, he would need uh, a papal rescript. Of the Pope, right. Yeah, he'd, he'd need a specific legal instrument signed by the Pope to give him the authority to try so and do he the things he's doing. He said, I know I don't, and it's ridiculous to suggest I would, and then he went and, and, got, went it. and got it. And then he went and got it. That's right. And so there's that. And then, of course, there are the cardinals who we um, probably shouldn't name just by virtue of the, the situation, but the cardinals of the Roman Curia, pillar readers all, who have sent us uh, who, whose lawyers have sent us letters saying that well, our reporting is Cardinal, false. Cardinal Betchew called my reporting false and um, misleading uh, when we started publishing on the Vatican financial scandal back in 2019, it was. He called it false and misleading and scandalous. That's right. And, questioned so this is not, uh, and he's on uh, trial now but, for that, actually. So, right. but, uh, so here's Okay, the so point. apart from Cardinal Whirl, Cardinal Roach, Cardinal Betchew, I struggle to think of another example where a cardinal of the Catholic Church has flatly denied a story we reported, which turned out to be true. Um, tr- yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Just okay. those three. But of course, uh, it, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things, and Luke noticed this. Uh, and put it was in Starting Seven, which of course everyone who is a paying subscriber to the pillar you should read Starting get, Seven. It's you, the best. Man, I, don't, I can't wake up without it. it. Yeah. Um, but Luke noticed this week that one of the one of the first private audiences Pope Francis had after Cardinal Garlanda's denial uh, was with Cardinal Garlanda, and um, oh, be into, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that meeting where they presumably didn't discuss his work reforming to propose reforms to the conclave, which he's not doing. Uh, I don't know what else they would have talked about, but I, I bet it would be interesting. And and I mean, on the subject of things that definitely didn't happen, uh, we, we heard from a couple of different people around the Secretary of State this week, including people who, you know, are around the Secretary of State and originally told us about uh, this this project that 
Pope Francis, we reported, entrusted Cardinal Ghirlanda with, that there was a full-blown mole hunt on to find out who leaked this Which thing. Which is an unusual thing to do if you don't. So let's talk about that. So here How do you leak information that doesn't exist? I, here are, as I see it, the possible reads of this. And it, it's not our job to tell you which to read. I think it's just, I just want to lay out the possible reads of this. One, our um, Vatican sources were wrong. Separately and independently. Uh, separately and, and independently wrong. That's right. Our Vatican sources were separately and independently wrong. And indeed, there was no um, entrustment of Cardinal Ghirlanda to work on this by Pope Francis. And our sources were wrong or separately and independently sort of dramatically hyperbolized this. Um, and Cardinal Ghirlanda's denial was just, was an affirmation of fact. That's, that's possibility one. It is our experience that our sources are... Uh, not wrong. We vet them. We we weigh them against each other. We weigh their sort of positions and influence. But it is a possibility, and again, it's for you to decide. Or um, having seen the reaction to this, the Holy See uh, rather quickly sort of walked it back. And Girlanda's mode of walking it back was to say that he didn't know anything about it. Um, that is a, another possibility. Um, in which case, you could say that the reporting itself was the thing which sort of took these things off the table. There is always this there's always this issue when we do reporting on stories right. like this. The possibility of a sort of particle wave theory of journalism yeah, where that's right. the act of reporting something changes the thing that you are observing and reporting on and can sometimes radically alter its progress or stop it cold. I'm just trying to think. So what are the other options? So the options are that our, our sources were sort of separately and independently wrong, or this is how Gerlando sort of walked it back. Or does anything else occur to you? I'm not trying to be flipped. Well I'm no, just, if we say that something happened and Cardinal Ghirlanda says that thing absolutely didn't happen. There's there's no third way. There's no third way. Yeah. There's right. either it happened or it didn't. It's a binary proposition. I think that's right. So, uh, and I mean, we may find out one day. Uh, it's possible, uh, or we may not. Uh, I think that if uh, if in six months or a year or eighteen months. A, a series of reforms to University of Domenici Gregis come out that say roughly what we reported. <laughs> it's going to cause some very awkward questions. It would at the cause press some very conference. awkward questions. But again, so we won't know sort of what the trajectory was. I do stand by our reporting. I think I take our sources seriously. We don't report things just because sort of one person tells it to us with giddy, giddy excitement. In fact, if someone tells us something with giddy excitement, we're skeptical of it. Um, I usually, so, yeah, anyone who's too excited about a story they're trying to tell us, I usually ignore them for a week. Um, yeah, that's right. Just to be yeah, and then and then see what else other people have to say who are in a better position. To, so our, um, you know, so it's for me, it's sort of like what <laughs> my own uh, my own estimation of the situation is that our sources are tested and our track record demonstrates that. But there are certainly sort of two different ways to take it. And in either case, the interesting thing is, it seems that now the notion of um, these reforms, you sort of say, maybe we'll see them in 18 months. But I think that if we these might. reforms- I don't, I don't know. I have no I, idea. I think that to the extent that these reforms were underway, um, that the genie has probably been put back in the bottle, so to speak, having seen sort of a significant public outcry there. What I found interesting is across the general Catholic media landscape, particularly in and around the Vatican, there was immediately on Sunday a- I don't want to say scripted, but I, I, I would say very uniform response of saying, of course, these reforms are being considered. Of course, Cardinal Galanda is the guy to do it. And of course, these are exactly the reforms that we should expect because here's what a bunch of people have been saying for the last year, two years about the need to make the conclave more synodal, the need to make the process of electing a pope more synodal, to make the College of Cardinals more synodal. You know, Of course, anyone could have seen this coming. This isn't actually big news. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And all of that sort of turned into an awkward silence when Cardinal Gerland issued his denial. But I, I have noticed that nobody has sort of followed up from that sort of section of Vatican papal media apologetics, I guess, is the, probably the best way of describing that section of the ecosphere, uh, to say, well, Cardinal, Cardinal Gerlanda has said it, so therefore it can't possibly ever have been true. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. like it's they, they've just kind of paused, and I I find that very odd. Well, I think it demonstrates um, th- there has like if been, there was actually nothing happening, and these reforms were never likely to come about in the future. I would have expected everyone to take their cues and say, "All right, you know, we've got to throw this." I understand a couple of people got their hands caught in the mangle on Sunday because they responded too fast before they listened to what Cardinal Gerlanda was going to say, but. Um, you know, you would expect if that was the if that's the party line on this now, they'd be spinning it, but they're not. Edward, and I, I find think that people, weird. I think I don't find it weird because I think it's a fallout from Rupnik. I mean, very honestly, I think what it conveys mm-hmm. is we're living in a post Rupnik world, so to speak. Um, we're not post Rupnik yet. We're not post Rupnik, but post Rupnik incarnation world, so to speak. And I think you know one of the things that we have seen is that the consequence of the Rupnik incarnation debacle is that even people who have been uh, the people who have been most inclined to give the Holy See and the Roman Pontiff the most amount of sort of a ben- not only benefit of the doubt but just um, tr- you know reflexive, reflexive trust. That's right, reflexive support and trust are now holding their bets, so to speak, before sort of putting down and saying, "Well, if the Holy See said it, it must be so." So um, uh, the Rupnik thing may be the most, um, maybe the sort of final blow for a lot of people who were sort of papal, papal, papal um, maximalists or inclined to sort of trust the pontiff at every turn, even when right, other the people- the Pope hasn't denied this. London, Jacant, and things like that. No, but I think it raises questions about the credibility of the apparatus, so to speak, um, surrounding well, the Well, it's funny because the denials from the Vatican press office were rather more qualified. Well, um, it was so, not so much a denial from the Vatican press office. I think the way to read it- Well, I mean, no, the Vatican press office basically said, well, we don't know anything about that and we don't think it's true. But that's different no, to I saying hear the it second is not part. true. I, I didn't hear the second part. What I heard is we don't know anything about that. And what right. I've learned with press offices is that press offices are often, un, very frankly, uninformed. I, I find that at the diocesan level, I find that oh, at yeah. the level of the SCCB. So I don't- No, but I, I mean, I, I find it interesting that, um, and, and it's to your point, that even institutionally, there's now more caution to these things. Like I think if if all of yeah, this had played right. out five years ago, the Vatican press office would have said, of course, this is false. A cardinal has denied it. Therefore, it's false. And now they're just kind of like, well, we don't really know anything we don't about know. that. We don't know anything about it. Right, exactly. No one quite wants to put their name on a denial. You don't because normally no see a CYA it. coming out of the yeah, Stampa. I mean, you you know, you have seen, <laughs> look, it's not new for, the, for the, there to be sort of, I, again, I... History is the only thing that will prove whether Ghirlanda was telling the truth or not. We stand by our reporting, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you have seen these situations unfold in the Vatican before, this sort of famous Dario Vigano lettergate, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and 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 many other things where it was like the the, the press office goes to bat for somebody who's being accused of, of being untruthful and then gets burned by it. So I think that's – yeah, I think you're quite right. The, this is – it took – for many people might be saying, you know, what took so long, but I think Rupnik – incarnation really was for even the most ardent papal defenders the the last line of credibility where people would reflexively say yes if the pope or his closest advisor say it, it must be true no no one i think can credibly say right now the pope would not be the pope or the holy see would not be untruthful not even because the pope was not truthful about um uh rubnik's incarnation it's not like the pope 
concealed it. Just that that seems or said to anything about such, it at all. Right, exactly. But just that that seems to be such um, a, a, a blow against integrity for many people that it's hard to for them to therefore say, well, we can count on his integrity when he's asked about things or count on the integrity of his folks. So that's um, not a sea change for many people, but I think um, it's a high watermark. That's the phrase that I'm looking for in terms of sort of people non-trust. I wonder, and this is naked speculation on my part. Um, I wonder if the if the sudden private audience with Cardinal Gerlanda this week, after his denials came out, I wonder if the substance of the conversation wasn't Pope Francis saying, "Why on earth did you call it all a bunch of lies? I I asked you to do a thing, and I had plans for that. Like now you've backed me into a corner here. What? Right? Yeah, that could be. That, why'd you that, go off half cocked? That that very well could be. Yeah, mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Okay, we need to take a break. We do. And this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by our friends at the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. And what we want to tell you about in this little commercial break is the University of Dallas's campus in Rome. Ed, I don't know if you know this, but you know the University of Dallas has a campus not only in Texas, but also in Italy, because at the heart of a University of Dallas education is the Rome experience. The university's wildly popular semester study abroad, which is typically done as a sophomore. We know people who have been part of the Rome experience at the University of Dallas who just say that it has been one of the most transformative educational and spiritual experiences of their lives. I can well imagine why. I mean, you, you get to live in the city where Western civilization happened, where it first flourished, where the church's intellectual and spiritual traditions put down their roots, where they're still kept and, you know, nurtured and flourished today. Um, you know, I, I gather that the, I've never been there myself and I would, I wouldn't say no to an invite. Um, the Rome campus is in the, in the Dewey Sante neighborhood, you know, the Peter and Paul, the two saints neighborhood. Yeah, which is which kind is, of like the Castle Gan- Gandolfo universe. Like it's in a very beautiful place just outside of the city of Rome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, it's, yeah, it's a gorgeous part of the world. And I mean, there's, there are things you can't learn in a classroom and can't read in a book for them to, you know, really have their full impact. It's one thing to read, you know, sort of great books or whatever. It's another thing to experience where they come from, where they happen to walk the streets, to see, to to feel history, you know. So students at you know UD's Rome campus can you know have a home base and travel to places like Florence and Venice and Assisi, and I mean you know not just in Italy, they can go to Greece, France is right there, Switzerland. I mean it's, it's an incredible place to be, being able to read the Iliad and then you know go walk around the Aegean coastline. Is you know what a what a thing to do you know if you're studying art and Michelangelo to be able to go to the Sistine Chapel to look at the Pietà you know all of that stuff I mean this is that's that's the full educational experience. Here's how it works. So uh, every semester, there are about 100 students with UD faculty and their families living in this very tight-knit, kind of cool community for a semester on UD's own Dewey Santi Rome campus, which is a cool thing. Again, it's sort of outside of Rome. It's the Castle Gandolfo universe. There's a vineyard there. There's a beautiful chapel. There are recreation facilities. There's a vineyard? There's a vineyard. There's a working vineyard. You can get UD wine from the working vineyard. There is there's this cool like a forno this outdoor wood oven and grill from which they cook awesome things a cappuccino bar oh and the come students, on ah. this, in, in the in the fall the students actually participate 
in the uh, in the uh, Vendemia, the the grape harvest. They harvest the grapes. Said um, in the spring, the students don't harvest the grapes, but they get Holy Week in Rome, so that's pretty good too. Um, the students take these courses, which are directly tied into what they're doing. A course in the literary tradition, um, the Greeks and the Romans, and and sort of up into the English tradition. A course in Western civilization, which again, you're right there at the heart of Western civilization. A course in the philosophy of the human person. A course in the Western theological tradition. A course in the art and architecture of Rome. The students take trips to Greece and Northern Italy together. They have a famous sort of ten day break in which students go all over the, the world. And this is something that I know to be very cool. We had have friends, um, uh, clerics who work in the Roman Curia or who work um, at the North American College or we know deacons who are in studies, um, transitional deacons who are in studies. And we know so many people whose pastoral ministry includes ministry to the students at the University of Dallas. So these kids are getting like this very cool Catholic community, this very good academic formation, this opportunity to travel everywhere, and then really good spiritual formation from people who are living and working in the heart of the church. The Rome program, I talked to people who, who who have done sort of all kinds of study abroad programs. I did my own study abroad program. And the Rome program at the University of Dallas, I'm honestly saying this, sounds to me always like about the coolest experience that you um, could have. And and I know so many people too who have like lifelong friendships or marriages or discover their vocations there. It's like, it's just like a sort of um, almost a novitiate of life where, where people really come out changed. If you want to watch some videos about it, learn more about it, go to udallas.edu slash pillar. But let me just tell you, we are sincere fans of the Rome program. And uh, we think if you're thinking about where to go to college yourself, where your kids are going to go to college, et cetera, et cetera, where you're going to recommend to your parishioners to go to college, you should go to udallas.edu slash pillar and just look at what the Rome program looks like. I'm going, I want to see this video of the, I, of the vineyard. I want to see the vineyard and I want to see the pizza oven. This is like, I want to see those things too. I want to see them on the video. And belief, then, it sounds so and cool. then I will be I, excited to see them. Um, we have actually been invited to the university of Dallas's Rome campus when we've been in Italy, but we haven't had a chance to make it yet, but I'm really, really hopeful that we'll make it soon. Yeah. Yeah. And we are back and, um, listen, before we talk about – so next week, we will be in Baltimore for the USCCB's annual fall meeting. There's some things on the agenda, some things for us to talk about. the autumn meeting, please? <laughs> the autumn meeting? I mean, I don't have a problem with saying fall generally, but like I really – this is petty, and this is the editor in me. But when, when the USCCB called the fall plenary assembly all caps, it's kind of like when a doctor says tummy instead of stomach. Like, you know, <laughs> there's a grown-up word for the season right there. Could we just – could we just use that, please? All right. Sorry. No, I, no, that's that's an important important opinion. No, it's not important, but I I just wanted to say it. Okay. Yes, we're so, going to Baltimore next week. We're going to be at the Autumn Plenary Assembly of the USCCB. The Autumn Plenary Assembly, and tell the people where tell the people what will be really fun and what we're really excited about. What I'm really looking forward to, as I always do, is the live show this year. We're we're booking out the same bar. Todd Connors. That we went to last year. That we went to last year. I have had several conversations with them and they keep saying, yes, we're looking forward to having you. Yes, we remember you from last year. Yes, apparently I have the same name as one of their middle school teachers. Um, so we are going back to Todd Connors. It's going to be a great time. We will record the podcast there. I'm going to be completely honest with you. That's a secondary concern. I'm really looking forward to just getting to see people again. We had a lot of friends, a lot of readers there. We had priests, we had seminarians, we had all sorts there. We it, we had a really great time last year. I'm looking forward to it. And because they are just menches, 
It's the University of Dallas who are sponsoring it this year. That's right. They're sponsoring this podcast episode. They're sponsoring next week's live show. And it's going to be a really fun live show because we're going to have some stuff to give away. We're going to have some games to play. We're going to have some good conversation. And just like the live show, which is next, what, what is the date? Wednesday, November 15th. Wednesday, Wednesday, November 15th at 7 p.m. at Todd Connors Bar in Baltimore. We're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be great. We're going to love it. So be there. And bring your groundhog. That's right. <laughs> okay. So um, when we are there, Ed, for our live show, we, of course, will be talking about the deliberations of the USCCB and um, what it's been up to. And there are a few things on the agenda that I think are interesting. There will probably be some conversation about the newly published introductory note to faithful citizenship. The thing which I think will be most in, of interest to our readers is that the final votes on the breviary will take place. The USCCB will vote. You know, the USCCB has been in this process of of revising the uh, the, the liturgy of the office, the, the divine office, for, for for feels like about 150 years, and so they will make the final votes on on um, new texts for the divine office. And you're wondering, okay, so what does that mean about should I get a new breviary? What still has to be changed are the readings. So, you know, the New Amer American Bible is undergoing a revision process, and those two things have to be synthesized. So we're not quite to the end of the road yet, but all of the work that the Bishop's Conference has to do for a new breviary or new set of breveries is, will be done at this meeting when the bishops finally vote to approve the breviary, which I know for our listeners has been a huge, they, huge, they huge They just need to redo the Bible. Then they just need to redo the finish redoing that, the Bible. So right will, around the corner, then right, or, exactly, and then things will be set. But we're we're on our way. We are well on our way for a project. I think probably the thing which is most important that the conference does to most of our listeners is revision of the of the of divine office, the prayer of the church that clerics, religious, and many lay people pray every day. And they've been doing this piecemeal for about 150 years, um, and they'll, they'll be done with the last piece of it. So that'll be very very cool. I think there's no chance that it doesn't pass. But um, but. Then there are, Ed, some elections, some elections for- Before uh, we get uh, on to the elections, can you answer one question for me? Yeah. Why does America have to have its own translation of the breviary? Every other English-speaking Catholic bishops' conference uses a different set, nice, three-volume as it happens, um, set of breviaries that's a different translation. It's, I, I think- superior in terms of poetry and artistry and fidelity. Um, but I, that, that's to one side. Without making a qualitative assessment of one versus the other, like, what is this? Why is there this American exceptionalism? We need to have an American breviary and an American Bible. Like, what, what is the function of that? I'm asking sincerely. Well, it is the prerogative of the Episcopal Conference to approve no, the translation. I, I understand it's the prerogative. I'm just saying, why, why would we have... Why would See, we be speaks, a church divided by a your, common language? This, I think, may speak to your sort of failure to understand the American, the American, the the true sort of American ethos, which is um, why would we use not ours? You know, for I the see. This is American exceptionalism. I see. Why would why would the bishops, if the bishops have the responsibility to approve a translation, why would they just take an off the shelf translation rather than because it wouldn't take things them fifteen might, years to do it? <laughs> It seems to me to be a very American, not even American ecclesial, just a very American thing to say, if it is our prerogative to make to, to approve one, we better make it so we can be certain that it is the best, whether or not it is the best. Um, Again, I'm not here to make a value judgment about one versus the other. So I'm just I saying it the seems an odd commission thing for, to do. The International Commission for English and the Liturgy, which is sort of this um, office of translators and other liturgy nerds that's funded by a bunch of Anglophonic bishops conferences, ISIL suggests translations of liturgical texts, and then it's to the bishops' conferences to adapt them. I think that when ISIL initially suggested translations of the liturgical texts for the Liturgy of the Hours, 
both the American Conference and the um, Bishops' Conference of, of, of England and Wales kind of made some adaptions to that. And the English, uh, the English one, the one from the English, sort of took off in many other parts of the world and things like that. But um, I, I don't think that the English didn't make any changes themselves. And more to the point, now we're taking ISIL translations and more or less sort of incorporating them. It's just that the translations ISIL says are better than the translations that it did previously. So um, why wouldn't you want it to be the best? Is that, like You're saying, why do they need to have an American made? And I guess my question is, why wouldn't you want it to be the best? Made in the USA. Made, in, made in America is always better. I mean, okay, if you have a choice between buying something that says made in the USA or not made in the USA, which one are you going to buy? Well, not in the USA is a big category. I don't know. <laughs> Damn right. If I'm if I'm getting a suit, it's probably not going to say made in the USA in it. If I'm buying denim trousers, I want made in the USA. Well, I guess we disagree about suits. Do you do you want a bespoke Savile Row rendition of The Office, the Liturgy of the Hours, <laughs> I honestly... or do you want a sort of you know? Do you, do you want the the Walmart jeans? Of- uh, Ed, who cares what they're wearing on Paris or Savile Row? You know, it's what you wear from ear to ear and not from head to toe that matters. Can I tell I you a secret? Annie this is probably that. what, yeah, it was. And I, I hate that musical so Yeah, everybody much. hates Annie. Annie's the worst. Okay. Ed, we have some elections. We do. We have elections. Committee elections. So it's time for us to make some predictions. Oh, oh, are we do is this is that what we're doing? Is it are we are we placing wagers? Is that what's we're, going on? We don't have we we are going to um Hang we on. are going I'm to make get some my book out. If we're making book on this. We're making book on this. We'll each sort of offer our prediction and then we'll see next week on the show who 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 knew better. You always kick my backside. I don't know that I do, but let's do. I mean, that's because I make what I think are reasonable, sometimes interesting, and perhaps occasionally enlightened observations about it. But you actually know how the bishops in the conference work and think, so you always win. I'll say this: in this case, what we have to decide is: do we have to pick? These are elections between two candidates for various offices. We're going to talk about what those offices do, but I I want you. I'm going to let you to decide. Either we can each pick who we think is going to win. Or we have to pick opposite persons, in which case the person who gets to pick first effectively is the. No, I, I'm happy for I'm happy for us to to both have free choice, and then if we have a consensus pick, then that's that's worth no. I suspect we'll have consensus all the way across. Okay, well let's take a look. Okay, okay. So the first uh, the first office is the is the sole sort of in, uh, the sole sort of executive office of the conference up for election this year. It is the election for the secretary elect. Do you remember why we're electing a secretary elect? Uh, yeah, because the previous secretary became the vice president. Right, and so then we oh, sorry, had president. A, president became, became the president. president. That's exactly right. So then we had a sort of temporary situation, but now we need to elect. Now this has become the secretary becomes the president because the new norm is to elect someone who is too old to serve as president the next time. So the VP no longer becomes the P. The VP is always, I say always, the last two times ineligible to eventually run for P when their term is over. So it's now you go from secretary to president, and VP becomes a sort of you know. Uh, gold watch at the end of your your conference career. Is that fair? I think that's totally fair. So the secretary, you know, co- coordinates not to- Gold watches are ugly, by the way, if anyone's wondering. The secretary, you know, sort of um, is responsible for making, for the record keeping, he has a staff to do this, but responsible for the record keeping of the conference itself and the executive committee of the conference and the administrative committee of the conference. He's also the chair of the, of the very powerful committee on priorities and plans. 
The Committee on Priorities and Plans, which is constituted by regional representatives and then the heads of various um, standing committees, is an extremely powerful committee because it is the one which determines who the sort of nominees are for various offices. And he is also the person who um, the, the Committee on Priorities and Plans rather also oversees the conference's strategic planning process, which is kind of, I think, in a in a moment of change, the conference, I think, is uh, is doing some changing to its strategic planning process. And we'll have some reporting on that when we can. But anyway, the strategic planning process is important because that determines how the conference staffs up, what it spends money on in terms of in personnel, and what it sort of prioritizes in terms of work output. So all the bishops vote on strategic plans. In the current iteration, all the bishops vote on strategic plans for the conference, but it's the Committee on Plans and Priorities that helps to develop this plan, which again is the roadmap for how the conference is going to spend time and how the conference is going to spend money. So it's a very powerful sort of committee, and it's chaired by the, the secretary of the conference. So we have two candidates for this office, Archbishop Paul Coakley of, of Oklahoma City and Archbishop Alexander Sample of Portland in Oregon. Right. But this is a, this is a phony election because Coakley is already in post. Like they're not going to turf him out halfway Coakley through. Coakley is now the secretary and is now running for, uh, to finish out um, uh, Brolio's uh, term. term and is now sort of running for his own term. Right. They're going to give it to him. I mean, this, I think we're, we're both, if anything is going to be a lock, this is the lock. It's a gimme. Yes. Yeah. I think Coakley for the win. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think Archbishop Sample is, is, is graciously allowing his name to go forward without any serious expectation that this is going to be a closely fought contest. Okay. Coakley for the win. Now the committee on Catholic education, the committee on Catholic education does not actually sort of supervise Catholic schools in this country. It does not sort of set standards or criteria for them. The, the bishops of the Committee on Catholic Education do provide recommendations to dioceses. They facilitate sometimes training for principals and superintendents and things like that. They set something of a vision for Catholic education, and and, and that's both at the sort of um, parish school level, the high school level, and also in theory for universities. So they sort of set – um, set a call for how Catholic universities should comport themselves, how Catholic schools should comport themselves, some best practices, things like that. They're, they're, they don't, again, oversee in an authoritative way Catholic schools, but they effectively monitor and make recommendations for Catholic education on behalf of the bishops as a body. You have two candidates for this uh, for this chairmanship here, and they're, they're from, to my mind, interesting candidates. The first is David O'Connell, Bishop David O'Connell, the Bishop of Trenton, who was um, who, who who was a priest of the Vincentian Order and was, Ed, you'll probably know, um, at one time the president of the Catholic University of America. Yes. And um, while before O'Connell, Catholic University was often sort of criticized as being not always in line with the magisterium and things like that, O'Connell is sort of thought to be the sort of first person to catalyze a, a change towards a more sort of To make it more of a university reflective of its Episcopal alumni right. rather than Susan Sarandon. <laughs> right. So that's David O'Connell, someone with a lot of experience in Catholic higher education in America. The other candidate is, and I, you know, I have to call this as, a, as it is, um, my friend, my former boss, um, uh, Bishop James Conley in the Diocese of Lincoln. So I have to sort of own my bias there. But Conley is an interesting figure in sort of the world of Catholic education because he's a graduate of, a, of a, this program called the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas, which made a lot of Catholic converts in the 70s and was sort of focused on um, a kind of liberal arts education or a classical education. Conley is... Um, kind of very close with the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, which is, again, sort of championing this sort of um, growth in what some people call liberal arts Catholic approach to education or what some people call a classical approach to Catholic education, but something which is much more about 
great books and poetry and primary texts and experiential learning at the lower levels and a move away from kind of the sort of textbook model of pedagogy. So Conley is, represents a very sort of particular school of, a, of educational thought in the United States, which is not always sort of in alignment with that, the sort of pedagogical approach of the National Catholic Educational Association, the NCAA, which is sort of the teachers, not the teachers union, but the sort of trade group for Catholic educators and things like that. So David O'Connell, higher education guy, Conley, mostly known as a kind of classical guy, if you will, All which right. I think it's, it makes for interesting choices. Give me your pick. I'm owning my bias here. I'm not sure I'm objective here, but I, I think Conley could take it. All right. Um, I know nothing about this race other than what you have just told me. And I'm saying the guy who actually ran a university wins the election. Okay. And I think, you know, I think that David O'Connell, O'Connell will be viewed more favorably by, so if there are two blocks in the conference, a sort of conservative block and a much smaller sort of, you might say, theologically progressive block, if you want to, you know, sort of say if there's a sort of soupage block of voters in the conference, O'Connell is going to be more palatable, I think, to the soupage block of voters in the conference. That doesn't mean I think that he aligns with them theologically or things like that, but I think that Conley for them represents... It's the Laurie effect. That's how Archbishop Laurie yeah, got Conley, VP last you know, time. It's not that he's of that camp, but he's... He was right. the guy that they they said, all right, of the candidates, that's the one we'll get. But so Conley you end likes up with the extraordinary form. He's from the Diocese of Lincoln. He likes classical education. He's not, and he's not shy about those things. You know, the colleges where he goes to give speeches are like Christendom College and Thomas Aquinas College and places like that. He was, a, and so there there are, of course, critics of those kinds of universities among the Episcopate. And I think O'Connell will seem to them to be a more palatable choice, even if he's not their sort of. So what I'm um, hearing is two guys who could more or less, all other things being equal, be expected to split the vote amongst the majority of the conference, but one of them will have an extra appeal to a minority of the conference. I think that's probably the case. Right. So I'm sticking with my pick here. I don't, I'm not saying I think your vote is, I'm not saying I don't appreciate the logic. I'm introducing the logic to your vote. Uh, I'm just saying. You're picking your guy. I, anyway. I am not objective about my friend Bishop Conley. <laughs> that's when it fair. Comes I look forward to you, like coming up to me at various times during the conference, whispering in my ear, this is my lunch hour, and then going and whipping votes for him or no, something. No, I'm not going to do that. That would not be, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but when it comes to reporting about, uh, look, I have done this many times. Do I recuse myself if we're reporting about things pertaining to the Diocese of Lincoln? Constantly. We have reported very harshly about the Diocese of Lincoln with regard to sort of its handling of clerical sexual abuse stuff. And I have no objection to that. But just knowing myself, I have also recused myself from it. Yes. Not only do I have no objection to it, I think it's important. Yes. One should be most exacting of one's friends. Okay. The next one is the one that makes me curious. Yeah. So the next election is for the chairman of the Committee on Communications. Um, the Committee on Communications, of course, oversees the communications apparatus of the USCCB, um, ha was responsible for like introducing to the bishops the decision to shut down, for the most part, the bishops' news service, Catholic news service. Um, was once responsible for the USCCB's sort of great publishing empire, which is gradual, which is quickly diminishing, oversees the copyrights for the USCCB, which anyone who's ever tried to sort of license scripture from the New American Bible knows is no easy thing. The communications committee has a broad brief and then is responsible for media relations. So the sort of media office of the conference, which we work the most with, is, is accountable to the communications committee. I would not be surprised if in the next tenure of the, uh, this is just my own private speculation but the 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 um chief communications officer of the usccb james rogers has been in post for uh, i would say 
probably close now to 10 years. I think James Rogers came on in 2014 or 2015. I would not, and that was after a career doing many other things, working for the American Cancer Society. I'm looking him up now. Uh, uh, he worked for the sort of, um, for the Jesuit Conference, which is the sort of group of, of um, Jesuit provinces in the United States. So he, he has had a pretty All robust career. I, I would not be surprised if Rogers in the tenure of the next bishop is looking towards um, retirement during the next chair. I mean, I think probably, you know, I would not be surprised if his retirement is in the cards in the next few years. And so it could be that one of the most significant decisions of the next chair of the USCCB uh, communications committee is to lead and, and be a critical part of the search for the next communications director. That's just my own. I don't have any sort of inside knowledge of that. It's just my own read of the situation. Hmm. So, um, so we have two candidates, Ed, and tell us about those candidates, if you would. Well, I no, I have more questions than information to impart. I mean, it is, um, it's Bishop Byrne of, Springfield, Massachusetts, and Archbishop Coyne, uh, now coadjutor of the Archdiocese of Hartford. And Coyne's had the job before. Coyne's had the job before. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, you'd kind of, I guess, say, well, I guess they'll probably give it back to him if he wants it. But, well, I mean, he's, didn't he like, could, he was Burlington before he got moved to Hartford, he was right? Burlington, yeah. Didn't he like ban EWTN from the yeah, diocese so or two, something? Like that? You have this is a very interesting sort of set of candidates because you have two guys who have markedly different relationships or associations or affiliations, at least with the sort of big elephant in the room of Catholic media in the United States, EWTN, which we used to work for, which broadcast the conferences, things, which everyone knows is a big thing and a controversial thing, which has been seemingly criticized by the Holy Father and been whose programming has been the subject of criticism by us and many others. So, anywho, um, Coyne, uh, at the time the Catholic News Service was shut down, um, said that he would not have our former employer, this was after we left, but our former employer, Catholic News Agency, which is a subsidiary of EWTN in his diocese, because he perceived that EWTN had an anti-Francis bent, or the Holy Father had said that he had implied that EWTN had an anti-Francis bent. So Coyne has sort of put, put his views out in the street to say, I think that this sort of, this large sort of conservative media empire is beyond the pale. Um, and how that might play in terms of him being sort of commit, co conference committee chair is very interesting. I mean, you know, he has said, I don't think this media is worth engaging with in my diocese. Would that impact sort of what decisions he made about media accreditation, media credentialing? I don't know. Byrne, on the other hand, is something himself of a kind of enigma. He doesn't speak very publicly. He was before this a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, before he went to Springfield in Massachusetts. But Byrne's sister is something of an EWTN celebrity, Sister Dee Dee Byrne. I don't know if you know that name, but Sister Dee Dee Byrne. She's the Trump nun. She's the Trump nun, yeah. She was a, she's a doctor and an army doctor who became a nun, and she spoke at the 2020 Republican National Convention and was a very, very zealous advocate for the election of Donald Trump, um, even to the point where people you know, where it was sort of interesting to raise questions about, is it appropriate for a religious to be advocating in this way for a political candidate? So directly, the kind of questions that are usually asked about sort of network sisters or sort of um, the nuns on the bus in the bag for the Democratic Party, Sister Byrne was a very zealous advocate for the election of Trump. Now, I have no idea if Bishop Byrne agrees with his sister on that or not. I would honestly hate for my own sister who works in the church to be pegged with my views and activities i'd feel terrible for her. That that you have case. one I'd, I'd say the chances of that have gone up but okay 
So, I mean, you know, it is, I don't know that it's fair to say Byrne's sisters, the Trump nun, QED, we can extrapolate something about what Byrne thinks, but it is sort of a, a, a data point that we have and we don't have very many about sort of Byrne on the spectrum of sort of ecclesiological perspective. I've attempted to interview him a handful of times and he's not, the Diocese of Springfield has not sort of given us those interviews. Um, but again, I don't well, take so very that, much that, that seems either. to suggest a, a mode of engagement with the media in line generally with how the USCCP <laughs> Or maybe he just sober and carefully reflects and doesn't give interviews to me. Again, as I said. I don't know. But anyway. No change I, there then. Um, I – okay. So here you have – okay. So burn will be more attractive than coin. Coin is aligned with the sort of supage arm of the of the conference. So he'll have those votes. Sort of anything to the center of left coin, coin so to speak, coin would have. Does he? Does Coin get enough votes from the rest of the conference, or does Byrne, who I don't know how well known he is, and is a relatively new bishop, does he win sort of resoundingly as a sort of sign of um, the perspective of the rest of the conference? I'm not so, actually sure. Hang on, I want to. I want to be clear. I'm distilling this correctly. You're suggesting this race is Coin or not Coin? I think this race is Coin or not Coin. Yes. Okay. And I tend to think that Coin gets enough votes to take it. You think coin? I'm not. Yeah, I think coin probably gets enough votes today. I could be wrong. What I really want to say is the election is coin or not coin. Okay. I'm I'm going to be contrarian and I'm going to say burn takes it. Me too. And that's right. That's what? my natural inclination. You just said no. I'm. I know, but I I really you can see that I'm very heavily on the fence about this. I understand exactly what the election is. I just don't know how to gauge the electorate sufficiently. I'm going back and forth. It, either way, I think it's close. Look, have the courage of your convictions here, man. Pick, make, pick a side. I think Coin gets it. You're killing me, Smalls. Okay. Um, so you're saying Coin. I'm saying not Coin. Yeah. Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church. Yes, Cultural Diversity in the Church. Bishop yeah. Brennan of Brooklyn versus Bishop Earl Fernandez of Columbus. The Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church is a sort of home for lots of subcommittees. It, it may be that its most important role is to be the home for lots of subcommittees, which sort of talk about pastoral care to, to groups groups of particular sort of identity in the life of the church. So the Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church, I'm saying this from memory, so let's hope I get it right, uh, is home to the Subcommittee on um, African-American Catholics, the Subcommittee on Catholics of Asian and Pacific Island Descent, the Subcommittee on Native American Affairs, the Subcommittee on Hispanic Catholics, and then the very interesting Subcommittee on Pastoral Care for Travelers, Migrants, and Refugees, which is the group which appoints the circus chaplain. So we have reported at the Pillar before about the circus, the USCCB's designated circus chaplain who is chaplain to circus performers all over the country, and it's the Subcommittee on Pastoral Care for uh, Travelers, Refugees, and Migrants which appoints that. So the, the Committee on Cultural Diversity on the Church does itself sponsor some programs to encourage sort of cultural engagement of, among people of different cultural backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds. But it is also sort of the holding ground for a number of different subcommittees reflecting sort of different ethnic identities among Catholics in the United States. Fair enough. The current chair, I think, is Bishop Cepeda, Art, Art, Bishop Art Cepeda. And um, this committee's chairman, I think, is typically a Hispanic bishop. Here, we do not have a Hispanic bishop running. Uh, we have um, 
Bishop Earl Fernandez of Columbus, who has sort of gotten a lot of attention because he's the first Indian American bishop of the Latin church in the United States. So Bishop Fernandez is in, ethnically Indian American. I would guess that his family is from the Goa region, the sort of region of, of, of India, which was evangelized by the Portuguese. His parents, I think, were are actually immigrants to the United States. His parents emigrated to the United States, so he's first generation American. Bishop Robert Brennan has a pretty Irish last name, doesn't he? Yeah. Bishop Brennan was born in the Bronx. He uh, he was, like Bishop Fernandez, briefly the Bishop of Columbus. Bishop Fernandez is the current Bishop of Columbus. His predecessor in Columbus was uh, was Bishop Brennan. So either way, you're getting a bishop with some Ohio connections, which everybody thinks cultural diversity when they think about Ohio. Um, but I think probably less himself, you know, representative of a, of a, of a, of a, of a culturally minority group in the, in the church in the United States. All right. I'm picking Bishop Fernandez. You're correct. It's going to be Bishop Fernandez. Yes. This is, this is my informal sense it, arising organically and indirectly from my general conversations with bishops throughout the year as I hear Bishop Fernandez's name mentioned more often. So I get the sense he puts himself about the conference more. Yeah, he's a very publicly known figure and um, and has a big profile and a growing profile. He's very young. I mean, Bishop Fernandez very young. is probably I like, feel like Bishop. I feel like Bishop Brennan sort of, you know, he's 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 the man on the mountain over there in Brooklyn, um, but he he's not, you know. I don't think he, he's a player on the national stage by by choice, um, in the in the same way that Bishop Fernandez has is becoming and has become. And you know, I just I just I just think it's you know sheer name recognition. It sounds I hear Bishop Fernandez's name more when I talk to bishops, uh, just in general. And so I think if you're, if they're talking about a guy more, they're more likely to pull the lever for. Him. Yeah, well, I I do think that you're right that that's what it will be. Doctrine. Ed, do you know much about what the Committee on Doctrine does? I do. They they draft they well first of all they they're an important reference point for almost all of the other committees when they're doing anything that touches on on doctrine they also come up with you know notes and explainers and, and documents of their own on particularly thorny issues and stuff they uh, they weighed heavily a couple of years ago on the the debate the bishops had on um, I think what we we still call Eucharistic coherence. Uh, the doctrinal committee had a lot of uh, a, a lot to say and a big role to play in that, and the document that eventually came out on that. Okay, that's all true, but let's talk about the two two really important things from doctrine. One, doctrine is home to the subcommittee on the translation of scripture. So this current retranslation of the NAB that's uh, housed in doctrine. Two, doctrine is home to the committee on healthcare issues. So that means doctrine is home to the ERDs. The ethical and religious directives, which are extremely controversial, which are under review kind of all the time, and which mean that doctrine is the locus for engagement between the bishops and the um, Catholic Health Association, which is this trade group for Catholic hospitals, which is you know regularly at odds with the bishop over sort of with the bishops over what's permissible in Catholic hospitals. Yeah, sure, doctrine rights explainers and notes and everything, but where the rubber meets the road is that doctrine is the committee that is engaged with Catholic hospitals on what's permitted and what isn't in Catholic healthcare. And that issue, because of the emergence of technology, but also because of the aging of the boomers, and also because of radical secularization and the way that people vote, is getting very, very, very um, intense. And so um, when I think about doctrine, I think about the ongoing and I think deepening fight between the bishops and Catholic hospitals. And at the same time, the sort of 
significant financial issues that have to do with the mergers and closures of Catholic hospitals, which again touches on canonical affairs, but which doctrine deals with as well. So doctrine has in its jacket some, um, yeah, some sort of teach the faith things, but also some sort of make sure that major, well-funded, serious players, i.e. Catholic hospitals, are living in accord with the faith, and that's that's a big deal. Okay, so why are there two very unlikely, in my opinion, candidates for it? Well, I'm not sure that they're very because the unlikely. two candidates are Bishop John Dorfler of Marquette of Marquette, and Bishop, which is and the diocese Bishop, of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and Bishop Mass of the Auxiliary Bishop of the Dice an Auxiliary Bishop in the Diocese of Brooklyn, who is also the rector of um, Dunwoody Seminary in New York. I did not know that. Yeah, Bishop Mass is the rector of Dunwoody. That oh okay, okay. So, so why are these so that, the guys? That's interesting. Your point is, and I think you're saying, why don't we see cardinals running for this committee? This seems like yes. a very big deal, a very important committee. Why don't we see prominent metropolitans and cardinals running for it? We have talked before about the fact that we think that a cadre of metropolitans and cardinals are distancing themselves from the conference because they're not winning elections, so they're keen to sort of just not put their names in the hat. I think that's part of it. But I think there's a broader contingent of bishops who are just not all that keen to give their time to the conference right now. We're finding more and more demands at home. You know, more and more dioceses are the state of dioceses in America right now is that so many now are facing bankruptcy. The diocese, Archdiocese of Baltimore, is announcing bankruptcy right now. We think, or just recently, we think that the Archdiocese of Washington is on the verge of announcing bankruptcy. You know, there, um, the Archdiocese of San Francisco announced bankruptcy. You know, lots and lots of dioceses have telegraphed that bankruptcy is in their future. And if not that, just more and more administrative duties. You know, it's not an easy time to be a bishop, and it's my perspective that m many large diocesan metropolitans, even the ones who aren't sort of taking their ball and going home, are just finding that committee chairmanships are a big um, – a, a, a require a big sacrifice of time and are less likely to put their names in the hat for that reason. But okay. these guys, I should say, these guys are not um, – Lightweights, theologically or otherwise. No, 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 no. I just meant two candidates of not national prominence, which is what you'd expect a committee like. The, I well, would let's think talk that, about that. I, I would think, for example, that running the committee on doctrine is like you run that, and like the the, the committees that matter are doctrine, pro life, and I don't know. Those are probably the two big ones. I would say in terms of national profile, and the you know if you are thinking about running for a bigger job in the conference, you would think that those are committees that you would be expected to have some experience with running. So I'm just surprised that there's there there aren't, as you say, cardinals running for this or archbishops running for this. I you know, I just I I would have thought it would have attracted um yeah. a big crowd. It's a lot of work. These guys are not lightweights though. Bishop Dorfler is probably well known. He he's um he's He's both a canonist and a theologian. He has a doctorate in theology and a, a canon law degree. And he ha he was, before he was the Bishop of Marquette, um, held about every office that you could hold in the Diocese of Green Bay. So, I mean, he just, you know, had a lot of, did a lot of things there in the Diocese of Green Bay. But he has risen to prominence because he was one of the first to put out a sort of diocesan policy on transgender issues in Catholic schools and pronouns and things like that a few years ago. And his policy got a lot of attention. And so there are people who have painted him as sort of very, very conservative because his policy was very, very conservative. He's a he's an advocate of courage. He's chaplain to Legatus, which is a kind of conservative organization of Catholic lay business people. And so there's a swath of people who sort of would paint Bishop Dorfler as being on the conservative end, the sort of JP2 conservative end of the 
of the Catholic universe. By JP2 conservative, I mean, I don't think that he's a liturgical traditionalist in any stretch of the imagination whatsoever, but he's sort of point, painted on the sort of J, conservative end of the JP2 universe of Catholicism. So that's Dorfler. And he, you know, he's got a doctorate in theology and uh, from the JP2 in DC, and he has a license in canon law, and he's held a lot of positions. And um, But where I think a lot of people started noticing him was when he put out his um, sexual orientation and gender identity policy a few years ago. Massa is a is a lesser known commodity publicly, but Massa is a well known commodity among the bishops. Right, um, because if you run a big bishop, seminary, you get he that. runs Dunwoody, but actually, um, that's yes, he runs Dunwoody, and he's taught at seminaries. But actually, he worked at the conference. Uh, he worked at the USCCB um, as the executive director of the Ecumenical Office from 2005 to 2011. Um, and there, I think a lot of bishop, people who are currently bishops got to know him or got to become aware of him. Massa is very, very cerebral. Uh, he's got a doctorate from Fordham. He, he wrote his dissertation under Avery Dulles. He, um, has broad theological interests and is known to be, I mean, honestly, he's in, he's kind of a nerd. I, I like, you know, he's kind of a nerd. You say and, that uh, with love. You say that with I do. respect. I know, I know. That's not a criticism. I think that, yeah, no, that's the, that that, 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 that to your mind is the recommending quality. Right, exactly. So it's a guy who, but he's, his personality is sort of meek and scholarly and retiring and somewhat shy, um, a, a very friendly guy, but, you know, some, somewhat less of a sort of big um, personality. And Dorfler is, I think, a, a bigger personality. But Massa is well known among the bishops and, I suspect, again, that um, Massa would be seen as the more appealing candidate to the sort of um, leftish side of the conference, even if that's not, in my observation, his own theological perspective. And he's going to have the support of um, of, uh, of Cardinal Dolan to the extent that that's influential among bishops and things like that. So Dorfler is, I think, a more well-known name. I'm not going to say he's a household name, but I think he's a more well-known name among Catholics. But I, I, I would think that Massa, who is, in my observation, very theologically orthodox and astute, and sort of conciliatory. So I think there might be a perception that he might be very more likely to be conciliatory among the, with the Catholic hospitals, which is what would make him attractive, I think, to a broader swath. My guess is that Massa takes it. Okay. I'm saying Dorfler. Yeah, I know you are. In, wait, why? Why do you know I am? Why are you saying Dorfler? No, why do you think I'm saying Dorfler? You made it I like, think you're course. saying Dorfler because you think it's good radio if we have opposite picks. No, I'm saying Dorfler because when offered the choice between a canon lawyer and a non-canon lawyer, I picked the canon lawyer. <laughs> but are you talking about who you would vote for or who you think is going to win? Both. All right. Yeah. Back the canonist. When in doubt, back the canonist. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, next on the slate is National Collections, where you have um, Bishop Sean the Dark McKnight versus uh, Bishop Muggenberg. Dan Muggenberg of Reno. Yeah. Um, look, it's National Collections. It's the money. There's um, Bishop McKnight is probably the lone left-leaning caucus bishop yeah, on he's the a, entire slate. Well, he and Coyne. He and Coyne. Uh, so, I mean, he'll, I think he'll, there will be a concerted push from him from that corner. Uh, it's it's national collections. It's not a terribly emotive issue. If there's one thing that unites the bishops, it's they would like to see the money come in. Uh, on the other hand, if, don't you want a guy from Nevada to be in charge <laughs> of the money? That seems like a no-brainer to me. I think this election is a referendum on Sean McKnight. I think it's McKnight or not McKnight in this election. And I tend to think that Dan Muggenberg wins the election. I think that's probably right. And and Sean McKnight will be an archbishop in the next 18 months. Okay. I, 
Yeah. I, I don't disagree with any of that. Okay. Now, Committee on Pro-Life Activities. Yes. Arch, Archbishop Sal Cordelione of San Francisco and Bishop Danny Thomas of Toledo. Everybody do you likes know Bishop for Thomas. a fact that either one of them is actually goes by Sal or Danny, or do you just yes. delight in, uh, in in appending nicknames to bishops? No, of course I do. I This is my beat. If I don't know how people refer to each other, then what good am I as a journalist? Fair enough. I'm just asking. No, I'm not, I'm not extending nicknames to them. I'm talking about how people talk about them. Okay. Or to them. Everybody knows Bishop Thomas is a very pro-life guy. Everybody knows Bishop Thomas is well-respected. Everybody l- likes Bishop Thomas. He's a fine guy, I think, is the perspective of most of the bishops. Uh, he was vicar for, when he was an auxiliary bishop, he was vicar for clergy in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, you know, which meant he oversaw the vocations office, which did very well. I think he was do, helping to do a lot of good work at St. Charles, and bishops sort of generally regard that. He has been the bishop of Toledo for 10 years. I think people have generally been, bishops have generally thought well of him in that regard. Um, uh, but Archbishop Cordelia- Has he been in Toledo for 10 to, years already? Yeah, just about. Wow. I feel like that appointment only just happened like five minutes ago. <laughs> I didn't think you followed Ohio Episcopal appointments that closely. No, Toledo's a Toledo's a near and dear. I was actually in the city the the week that he was getting his feet under the desk. Oh, so wow. I remember I was going around trying to talk to priests and I kept being told, uh, no, he's in a meeting with the new bishop. I was like, Got it. Got so. it. Got it. But Archbishop Cordelion, as you say, Ed is what? Uh, he's the guy who told Nancy Pelosi not to take communion. This, uh-huh. this is, I did. Archbishop Thomas, stand up guy. I'm absolutely sure. But an absolutely critical mass of the USCCB will view this as a referendum on let's back Cordelione for what he did. Mm-hmm. He deserves it. He stuck right. his neck out. He took a lot of flack. He's our guy. This election is Eucharistic coherence 2.0 or 3.0. And Electric I think, boogaloo. Yeah, that's right. And I think Cordelione takes it. Not yeah. it's not it's not about Thomas. It's not this one election. versus the other, but it's yeah, just gonna this be this election is a better call Sal kind of election. Better call yeah. Sal, is that well it's, yeah. I mean you can have that one. Okay. All right. Consensus picks are Archbishop Coakley for secretary, um, Bishop Muggerberg for national collections, and Archbishop Cordelione for pro life. Uh divided ticket. On Catholic education, you are going with your personal friend and favorite, Bishop Conley. I'm going with Bishop O'Connell on the grounds that he actually ran a Catholic university. Um, on communications, the decision comes down to coin or not coin. You're saying coin, uh, and I'm saying not coin. And on cultural diversity, we – oh, sorry. Cultural diversity, we also both, I think, said it was going to be Bishop Agreed. Fernandez. Or, Bishop yeah, Fernandez. Bishop Fernandez. And on doctrine – you have gone for the the nerds nerd, Bishop Massa, auxiliary of Brooklyn, and I have said back the canonist in Bishop Dorfler. We shall see. You could be we right, Ed. I, you, you always say that I read the conference really well, and um, I think I am good at breaking down what the elections are all about, but my track record is only so-so as an actual picker. I, I only ever have any success um, in the presidential and VP elections yeah. at the USCCB. You I read can, those well. I read those well, but that's because that's when it really does just get into macro level caucus strategy. Like there's very little about the actual personalities involved in that one. It becomes much more about just reading the party lines. We will break down all of this and much more at our live show next week on uh, on Wednesday, the 
15th of November at Todd Connors Bar in Baltimore at 7 o'clock. We would really, really like you to be there. It's going to be a great time. Wednesday, the 15th of November, Todd Connors Bar. And a special invitation to all the Episcopal candidates. Win, lose, or draw. Drink for free. Unlimited jello shots on us. (laughs) Or whatever you want. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by our dear and near friends at the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in the country. The University of Dallas is known for its rigorous undergraduate core curriculum, robust graduate and professional programs in business, ministry, education, and the humanities. With campuses in Texas and Italy, the University of Dallas is committed to an education that forms the students intellectually, socially, and spiritually for a life well lived. Go to udallas.edu slash pillar. And the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, the burger with the grown-up taste. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm J.D. Flynn. And my podcasting partner is Ed Condon. We'll be back next week live to you from Baltimore.